Section 14 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4, Luther, by the Reverend T. M. Lindsay, Part 2. When we piece together references and correspondence to Luther's student life, recollections of his fellow students, and scattered sayings of his own in afterlife, we get upon the whole the idea of a very level-headed youth, with a strong sense of the practical side of his studies, thoroughly respected by his professors, refusing to be carried away into any excess of humanist enthusiasm on the one hand, or of physical dissipation on the other, intent only to profit by the educational advantages within his reach, and to justify the sacrifices which his father was making on his behalf. He had been sent to Erfurt to become a jurist, and the faculty of philosophy afforded the preparation for the faculty of law as well as of theology. Luther accordingly began the course of study prescribed in the Faculty of Philosophy, logic, dialectic, and rhetoric, followed by physics and astronomy, the teaching in all cases consisting of abstract classification and distinctions without any real study of life or fact. The teacher he most esteemed was John Trutvetter, the famed Erfurt doctor, whose fame and genius, as all good Germans thought, had made Erfurt as well known as Paris. Scholasticism, he said, left him little time for poetry and classical studies. He does not seem to have attended any of the humanist lectures. But he read privately a large number of the Latin classical authors. Virgil, whose pages he opened with some dread, for was he not in medieval popular legend a combination of wizard and prophet of Christ, became his favorite author. His peasant upbringing made him take great delight in the bucolics and georgics, books, he said, that only a herd and a countryman can rightly understand. Cicero charmed him. He delighted in his public labors for his country and in his versatility and believed him to be a much better philosopher than Aristotle. He read Livy, Terence, and Plautus. He prized the pathetic portions of Horace, but esteemed him inferior to Prudentius. He seems also to have read from a volume of selections portions of Propertius, Portius, Lucretius, Tibullus, Silvius, Italicus, Statius and Claudian. We hear of him studying Greek privately with John Lange. But he was never a member of the humanist circle, and in his student days was personally unacquainted with its leading members. He had none of the humanist enthusiasm for the language and the spirit of the past. What he cared for was the knowledge of human life which classical authors gave him. Besides, the Epicurean life and ideas of the young humanist circle displeased him. They, on their part, would evidently have received him gladly. They called him the philosopher, 
they spoke about his gifts of singing and lute-playing, and of his frank, engaging character. In later days, he could make use of humanism, but he never was a humanist in spirit or in aim. He was too much in earnest about religious matters, and of too practical a turn of mind. Luther's course of study flowed on regularly. He was a bright, sociable, hard-working student and took his various degrees in an exceptionally short time. He was bachelor in 1502 and master in 1505, when he stood second among the seventeen successful candidates. He had attained what he had once thought the summit of earthly felicity and found himself marching in a procession of university magnates and civic dignitaries, clothed in his new robes. His father, proud of his son's success, sent him the costly present of a corpus juris. He may have begun to attend lectures in the faculty of law, when he suddenly retired into a convent and became a monk. This action was so unexpected that his student friends made all sorts of conjectures about his reasons, and these have been woven into stories which are pure legends. Little or nothing is known about Luther's religious convictions during his stay at Erfurt. This is the more surprising since Luther was the least reticent of men. His correspondence, his sermons, his commentaries— all his books are full of little autobiographical details. He tells what he felt when a child, what his religious thoughts were during his school days. But he is silent about his thoughts and feelings during his years at Erfurt, and especially during the months which preceded his plunge into the convent. He has himself made two statements about his resolve to become a monk, and they comprise the only accurate information obtainable. He says that the resolve was sudden, and that he left the world and entered the cloister because he doubted of himself. That in his case the proverb was true, doubt makes a monk. What was the doubting? The modern mind is tempted to imagine intellectual difficulties— to think of the rents and the church theology which the criticisms of Occam and of Beale had produced, of the complete antagonism between the whole ecclesiastical mode of thinking and the enlightenment from ancient culture that humanism was producing, and Luther's doubtings are frequently set down to the self-questioning which his contact with humanism and Erfurt had produced. But this idea, if not foreign to the age— was strange to Luther. He doubted whether he could ever do what he thought had to be done by him to save his soul if he remained in the world. That was what compelled him to enter the convent. The lurid fires of hell and the pale shades of purgatory, which are the constant background to Dante's paradise, were always present to the mind of Luther from boyhood. Could he escape the one and win the other if he remained in the world? He doubted it, and entered the convent. The order of monks which Luther selected was the Augustinian Aramites. Their history was somewhat curious. 
Originally, they had been formed out of the numerous hermits who lived solitary religious lives throughout Italy and Germany. Several popes had desired to bring them together into convents, and this was at last effected by Alexander IV, who had enjoined them to frame their constitution according to the rule of St. Augustine. No other order of monks shared so largely in the religious revival of the fifteenth century. The convents which had reformed associated themselves together into what was called the Congregation. The reformed Augustinian Aramites strictly observed their vows of poverty and obedience. They led self-denying lives. They represented the best type of later medieval piety. Their convents were, for the most part, in the larger towns of Germany, and the monks were generally held in high esteem by the citizens who took them for confessors and spiritual directors. The brethren were encouraged to study, and this was done so successfully that professorships in theology and philosophy in most of the universities of Germany in the 15th century were filled by Augustinian Aramites. They also cultivated the art of preaching. Most of the larger convents had a special preacher attached, and the townspeople flocked to hear him. Their theology had little to do with Augustine, nor does Luther appear to have studied Augustine until he had removed to Wittenberg. Their views belonged to the opposite pole of medieval thought and closely resembled those of the Franciscans. No order paid more reverence to the Blessed Virgin. Her image stood in the chapter-house of every convent. Their theologians were strenuous defenders of the Immaculate Conception. They aided to spread the cult of the Blessed Anna. They were strong advocates of papal supremacy. In the person of John von Paltz, the professor of theology in the Erfurt convent and the teacher of Luther himself, they furnished the most outspoken defender of papal indulgences. This was the order into which Luther so suddenly threw himself in 1505. He spent the usual year as a novice, then took the vows and was set to study theology. His textbooks were the writings of Occam, Beale, and Ai. His aptness for study, his vigor and precision in debate, his acumen, excited the admiration of his teachers. But Luther had not come to the convent to study theology. He had entered to save his soul. These studies were but pastime. His serious and dominating task was to win the sense of pardon of sin and to see his body a temple of the Holy Ghost. He fasted and prayed and scourged himself according to rule and invented additional methods of maceration. He edified his brethren. They spoke of him as a model of monastic piety. But the young man, he was only twenty-three, felt no relief and was no nearer God. He was still tormented by the sense of sin which urged him to repeated confession. God was always the implacable judge, inexorably threatening punishment for the guilt of breaking a law, which it seemed impossible to keep. For it was the righteousness of God that terrified him. 
the thoughts that all his actions were tested by the standard of that righteousness of God. His superiors could not understand him. Staupitz, vicar general of the order, saw him on one of his visitations and was attracted by him. He saw his sincerity, his deep trouble, his hopeless despair. He advised him to study the Bible, St. Augustine and Towler. An old monk helped him for a short time by explaining that the creed taught the forgiveness of sin as a promise of God, and that what the sinner had to do was to trust in the promise. But the thought would come. Pardon follows contrition and confession. How can I know that my contrition has gone deep enough? How can I be sure that my confession has been complete? At last, Staupitz began to see where the difficulty lay, and made suggestions which helped him. The true mission of the medieval church had been to be a stern preacher of righteousness. It taught and elevated its rude converts by placing before them ideals of saintly piety and of ineffable purity, and by teaching them that sin was sin in spite of extenuating circumstances. Luther was a true son of that medieval church. Her message had sunk deeply into his soul. It had been enforced by his experience of the popular revival of the decades which had preceded and followed his birth. He felt more deeply than most the point where it failed. It contrasted the divine righteousness and man's sin and weakness— it insisted on the inexorable demands of the law of God, and at the same time pronounced despairingly that man could never fulfill them. Staupitz showed Luther that the antinomy had been created by setting over against each other the righteousness of God and the sin and helplessness of man, and by keeping these two thoughts in opposition. Then he explained that the righteousness of God, according to God's promise, might become the possession of man in and through Christ. Fellowship of man with God solved the antinomy. All fellowship is founded on personal trust, and faith gives man that fellowship with God through which all things that belong to God can become his. These thoughts, acted upon, helped Luther gradually to win his way to peace of heart. Penitence and confession, which had been the occasions of despair when extorted by fear, became natural and spontaneous when suggested by a sense of the greatness and intimacy of the redeeming love of God in Christ. The intensity and sincerity of this protracted struggle marked Luther for life. It gave him a strength of character and a living power which never left him. The end of the long inner fight had freed him from the burden which had oppressed him, and his naturally frank, joyous nature found a free outlet. It gave him a sense of freedom, and the feeling that life was something given by God to be enjoyed, the same feeling that humanism, from its lower level, had given to so many of its disciples. For the moment, however, nothing seemed questionable. He was a faithful son of the medieval church, the Pope's house, with its cardinals and its bishops, its priests, monks, and nuns, its masses and its relics, 
its indulgences, and its pilgrimages. All these external things remained unchanged. The one thing that was changed was the relation in which one human soul stood to God. He was still a monk who believed in his vocation. The very fact that his conversion had come to him within the convent made him the more sure that he had done right to take the monastic vow. Soon after he had attained inward peace, Luther was ordained, and Hans Luther came from Mansfeld for the ceremony, not that he took any pleasure in it, but because he did not wish to shame his eldest son. The sturdy peasant adhered to his anti-clerical Christianity, and when his son told him that he had a clear call from God to the monastic life, the father suggested that it might have been a prompting from the devil. Once ordained, it was Luther's duty to say Mass and to hear confessions, impose penance, and pronounce absolution. He had no difficulties about the doctrines and usages of the Church, but he put his own meaning into the duties and position of a confessor. His own experience had taught him that man could never forgive sin. That belonged to God alone. But the human confessor could be the spiritual guide of those who came to confess to him. He could warn them against false grounds of confidence and show them the pardoning grace of God. Luther's theological studies were continued. He devoted himself to Augustine, to Bernard, to men who might be called experimental theologians. He began to show himself a good man of business, with an eye for the heart of things. Staupitz and his chiefs entrusted him with some delicate commissions on behalf of the order, and made quiet preparation for his advancement. In 1508, he, with a few other brother monks, was transferred from the convent at Erfurt to that at Wittenberg, to assist the small university there. Some years before this, the elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony, the head of the Ernestine branch of his house, had resolved to provide a university for his own dominions. He had been much drawn to the Augustinian Aramites since his first acquaintance with them at Crema, when he was a boy at school. Naturally, Staupitz became his chief adviser in his new scheme. Indeed, the university from the first might almost be called an educational establishment, belonging to the Augustinian Aramites. There was not much money to spare at the electoral court. A sum got from the sale of indulgences some years before, which Frederick had not allowed to leave the country, served to make a beginning. Prebins attached to the castle church—the Church of All Saints was its ecclesiastical name—furnished the salaries of some of the professors. The other teachers were to be supplied from the monks of the convent of the Augustinian Aramites in the town. The Emperor Maximilian granted the usual imperial privileges, and the university was opened October 18, 1502. Staupitz himself was one of the professors and dean of the Faculty of Theology. Another Augustinian Aramite was dean of the Faculty of Arts. The patron saints of the order, the Blessed Virgin and St. Augustine, were the patron saints of the university. 
Some distinguished teachers, outside the Augustinian Aramites, were induced to come. Among others, Jerome Schorff, from Tübingen. Staupitz collected promising young monks from converts of his order and enrolled them as students. Other youths were attracted by the teachers and came from various parts of Germany. The university enrolled 416 students during its first year. This success, however, appears to have been artificial. The numbers gradually declined to 56 in the summer session of 1505. The first teachers left it for more promising places. Still, Staupitz encouraged Frederick to persevere. New teachers were secured, among them Nicholas Amsdorf, who had then a great reputation as a teacher of the old-fashioned scholasticism, and Andrew Bodenstein of Karlstadt. The university began to grow slowly. Luther was sent to Wittenberg in 1508. He was made to teach the dialectic and physics of Aristotle, a task which he disliked, but whether in the university or to the young monks in the convent, it is impossible to say. He also began to preach. His work was interrupted by a command to go to Rome on the business of his order. The Augustinian Aramites, as has been already said, were divided into the unreformed and the reformed convents, the latter being united in an association which was called the Congregation. Staupitz was anxious to heal this schism and to bring all the convents in Germany within the Reformation. Difficulties arose, and the interests of peace demanded that both the general of the order and the curia should be informed on all the circumstances. A messenger was needed, one whom he could trust, and who would also be trusted by the stricter party among his monks. No one seemed more suitable than the young monk Martin Luther. Luther saw Rome and the impressions made upon him by his visit remained with him all his life. He and his companion approached the imperial city with the liveliest expectations. But they were the longings of the pious pilgrim, not those of the scholar of the Renaissance. So little impression had humanism made upon him. When he first caught sight of the city, Luther raised his hands in an ecstasy, exclaiming, I greet thee, thou holy Rome, thrice holy from the blood of the martyrs. That was his mood of mind. So little had his convent struggles and the peace he had found in the thought that the just live by faith separated him from the religious ideas of his time. His official business did not cost much time. He seems to have had no complaints to make against the curia, Indeed, the business on which he had been sent seems to have been settled in Germany by an amicable compromise. His official work done, he set himself to see the holy city with the devotion of a pilgrim and the thoroughness of a German. He visited all the shrines, especially those to which indulgences were attached. He climbed the thirty-eight steps which led to the vestibule of St. Peter's, every step counting seven years' remission of penance. He knelt before all the altars. 
he listened reverently to all the accounts given him of the various relics and believed them all he thought that if his parents had been dead he could by saying masses in certain chapels secure them against purgatory he visited the remains of antiquity which could tell him something of the life of the old romans the pantheon the Colosseum, and the baths of diocletian but if luther was still unemancipated from his belief in relics in the effect of pilgrimages and in the validity of indulgences for the remission of imposed penance his sturdy german piety and his plain christian morality turned his reverence of rome into a loathing the city he had greeted as holy he found to be a sink of iniquity its very priests were infidel and openly scoffed at the sacred services they performed the papal courtiers were men of depraved lives the cardinals of the church lived in open sin he had frequent cause to repeat the italian proverb first spread abroad by machiavelli and by bembo the nearer rome the worse christian it meant much for him in after days that he had seen rome for himself luther was back in wittenberg early in the summer of fifteen twelve staupitz sent him to erfurt to complete the steps necessary for the higher graduation in theology preparatory to succeeding staupitz in the chair of theology in wittenberg he graduated as doctor of the holy scripture took the wittenberg doctor's oath to defend evangelical truth vigorously was made a member of the senate three days later and a few weeks after he succeeded staupitz as professor of theology from the first luther's lectures differed from what were then expected from a professor of theology it was not that he criticized the theology then current in the church he had an entirely different idea of what theology ought to be and of what it ought to make known his whole habit of mind was practical and theology for him was an experimental discipline it ought to be he thought a study which would teach how a man could find the grace of god and having found it how he could persevere in a life of joyous obedience to god and his commandments he had himself sought and that with deadly earnest an answer to this question in all the material which the church of the time had accumulated to aid men in the task he had tried to find it in the penitential system in the means of grace in theology professedly based on holy scripture expounded by the later schoolmen and mystics and his search had been in vain but theologians like bernard and augustine had helped him and as they had taught him he could teach others that was the work he set himself to do it was a task to which contemporary theology had not given any special prominence and which in luther's opinion it had ignored his theology was new because in his opinion it ought to be occupied with a new task not because the conclusions reached by contemporary theology occupied with other tasks were necessarily wrong luther never knew much hebrew and he used the vulgate in his prelections 
He had a huge, widely printed volume on his desk and wrote the heads of his lectures between the printed lines. The pages still exist and can be studied. We can trace the gradual growth of his theology. In the years 1513 to 15, there was no sign of any attack upon the contemporary scholastic teaching. No thought but that the monastic life is the flower of Christian piety. He expounded the Psalms. His aids are what are called the mystical passages in St. Augustine and in Bernard. But what may be more properly termed those portions of their teaching in which they insist upon and describe personal religion. These thoughts simply push aside the ordinary theology of the day, without staying to criticize it. We can discern in the germ what grew to be the main thoughts in the later Lutheran theology. Men are redeemed apart from any merits of their own. Man's faith is trust in the verity of God and in the historical work of Christ. These thoughts were for the most part expressed in the formulae common to the scholastic philosophy of the time. But they grew in clearness of expression and took shape as a series of propositions which formed the basis of his teaching. That man wins pardon through the free grace of God. That when man lays hold on God's promise of pardon, he becomes a new creature that this sense of pardon is the beginning of a new life of sanctification. To these may be added the thoughts that the life of faith is Christianity on its inward side, that the contrast between the economy of law and that of grace is something fundamental, and that there is a real distinction to be drawn between the outward and visible church and the ideal church which is to be described by its spiritual and moral relations to God after the manner of Augustine. The years 1515 and 1516 give traces of a more thorough study of Augustine and of the German mystics. This comes out in the college lectures on the Epistle to the Romans and in some minor publications. His language loses its scholastic coloring and adopts many of the well-known mystical phrases, especially when he describes the natural incapacity of men for what is good. Along with this change in language, and evidently related to it, we find evidence that Luther was beginning to think less highly of the monastic life and its external renunciations. Predestination meaning by that not an abstract metaphysical dogma, but the thought that the whole of the believer's life and what it involved depended in the last resort on God and not on man, came more and more into the foreground. Still, there did not appear any disposition to criticize or repudiate the current theology of the day. But about the middle of 1516, Luther had reached the parting of the ways, and the divergence appeared on the practical and not on the speculative side of theology. It began in a sermon he preached on the theory of indulgences in July 1516, and increased month by month. The widening divergence can be clearly traced step by step until he could contrast our theology, the theology taught by Luther and his colleagues at Wittenberg, with what was taught elsewhere, and notably 
at Erfurt. The former represented Augustine and the Bible. The latter was founded on Aristotle. In September 1517, his position had become so clear that he wrote against the scholastic theology, declaring that it was at heart Pelagian, and that it obscured and buried out of sight the Augustinian doctrines of grace. He bewailed the fact that the current theology neglected to teach the supreme value of faith and of inward righteousness that it encouraged men to seek to escape the due reward of sin by means of indulgences, instead of exhorting them to practice that inward repentance which belongs to every genuine Christian life. It was at this stage of his own inward religious development that Luther felt himself forced to stand forth in public in opposition to the sale of indulgences in Germany. Luther had become much more than a professor of theology by this time. He had become a power in Wittenberg. His lectures seemed like a revelation of the scriptures to the Wittenberg students. Grave burghers from the town matriculated at the university in order to attend his classes. His fame gradually spread, and students began to flock from all parts of Germany to the small, poor, and remote town and the elector grew proud of his university and of the man who had given it such a position. In these earlier years of his professoriate, Luther undertook the duties of the preacher in the town church in Wittenberg. He became a great preacher, able to touch the conscience and bring men to amend their lives. Like all great preachers of the day who were in earnest, he denounced prevalent sins, he deplored the low standards set by the leaders of the church in principle and in practice. He declared that religion was not an easy thing, that it did not consist in externals, that both sin and true repentance had their roots in the heart, and that until the heart had been made pure, all kinds of external purifications were useless. Such a man occupying the position he had won, could not keep silent when he saw what he believed to be a great source of moral corruption gathering round him and infecting the people whom he taught daily, and who had selected him as their confessor and the religious guide of their lives. End of section 14 Read by The Story Girl